Um, some of you know that I grew up in church, uh, literally grew up in church. I was raised in a Christian home and was in church um, at least three times a week, and many weeks more than that, and uh, I, I experienced you know, everything there was to experience, and I'm very grateful for my upbringing. But, uh, you know, one thing that, that always struck fear in me growing up was, was a certain passage and some other complementary passages of Scripture. And uh, the, the one I'm thinking about primarily is Matthew chapter 25, I think it's verse 31 and following, and there Jesus is talking about the judgment at the end of time. And he uses the analogy there of sheep and goats. And you're familiar with that passage, right? So he says, you know, the sheep are going to be on one side and the goats are going to be on the other. And he's going to say to them, at least the sheep, come and, and uh, inherit the kingdom of God, my faithful servants. And they're going to say to him, well, what for? Why? <laughs> you know? And he'll say, well, I was sick and you visited me. I was, I was in prison and, and you came and, and so forth. I was hungry and you fed me. And then on the other side of the aisle is going to be the goats. And he's going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And they're going to say, but wait a minute. We fed the hungry and, and we helped the sick and we visited people in prison. We, we did all these things. And he says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. That always struck fear in me. Because, because I saw that it's possible to be a part of church and to not be a genuine Christian. Um, so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about authentic Christianity and the way I want to come at it it's like this, you'll see it in the title, um, Come Holy Spirit, We Need You. Come Holy Spirit, We Need You. And then the main idea is this, authentic Christian living happens when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And uh, for all our Spanish-speaking friends, in terms of text, it's mucho. We have several texts, that is, to look at today. So to continue along this idea of of being in and around a church or a Christian community and, and maybe not being authentically Christian, I want you to look at a text with me, and that's 2 Timothy chapter 3. And it will be on the screen here. Um, but I, I pray that you have a Bible. I, I mean, just one thing I don't like about the digital era is it, it takes us away from the book, the literal book. I mean, I use the digital era and, and technology, and I'm thankful for it, but I, I like the book. I like to hear pages turning and uh, whatever that was, I'm not sure. But <laughs> I don't like this mic either because that's what I do to this mic. I puff in it. First Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 3. Um, notice what Paul is writing here. He's, he's writing to Timothy, who is an upstart pastor. As a young man, he's been a protege of Paul's, and Paul has brought him along in ministry. And he says to Timothy, um, chapter 3, 
verse 1. But understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And notice verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, or some of the other versions say, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now what strikes me about this passage is that all these people he described, they're not outside the body of believers, right? Somehow they're associated with the church. Because he says, these people have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. They deny the power. So they look like Christians, but they're not really Christian. They've got all this stuff going on inside. And you might recall Jesus relating to a group of people in the Gospels called the Pharisees, right? He says, you guys look, look really, really nice on the outside. I mean, you're all cleaned up, but on the inside, you're just like, you're like a grave. You're full of dead men's bones. So we can, we can look good on the outside, but be dead on the inside. That, that scares me. And, and one of my prayers as a believer, one of my quests, I should say, that I pray about time and again is, God, please, please do not allow me to just go through the motions. Do not allow me to just wear the Christian label, but make sure that I am genuine on the inside, that I am authentic. And, and Paul says we should do this. He says that we should examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith, right? I mean, we take so much comfort in the fact, a lot of people do, that we have said a prayer, that we prayed one day and said, Jesus, please become my Lord. Be my Savior. I will follow you. It's very important. It's a prayer you need to say if you don't know Jesus or if you don't know God, if you don't have a relationship with Him. It is a confessional prayer, something that you need to confess. See yourself as a sinner. Pray for God to save you. But yet, that's just the beginning, right? In fact, James tells us that just faith in word is not enough. Confessional faith is not enough. He says, faith without works is what? Dead. It's just dead. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. So genuine faith, confessional faith that is authentic is a faith that has a sort of demonstration to it. It's, it's not just a faith that says one thing and does another. It's a faith that says one thing and that follows Christ. That's so important. So it's possible then that there be people in and around the church. It's possible that some of you are even here today. 
And you, you look good on the outside. Nobody really knows that you're not genuine. And if you grew, in, grew up in church like me, guess what? You're really good at the game. I have been in church during seasons of my life looking really good on the outside, but on the inside. <laughs> I wasn't following Christ. So it's possible. It's possible to have a form of godliness, but to deny the power thereof. To deny the power of godliness. Now let's contrast 2 Timothy 3 with another passage, and that is Philippians chapter 3. So you want to uh, turn to the left a couple books or so. This is Paul talking again. This is just an amazing passage here. He says there, but... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's like, I'm not putting any stock in whatever I gained up to this point. I'm not making any claim based on that. That's yesterday. That doesn't matter. I'm not putting any claim in the fact that I made a prayer one day back in, you know, A.D. 52 or whatever. No, I'm I'm pressing on. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted all things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and, check this out, the power of his resurrection. So, on one hand, we have people who are denying power, the power of godliness, but here we have a man who is seeking to know Christ in the power of His resurrection. Now, resurrection power, by the way, that is really, really awesome power. I mean, I don't know if it gets any more powerful than resurrection power, right? Being raised from the dead. Well, that's the kind of power that Paul wants to know. The resurrection power of Christ. So, what I want you to see here is the contrast. Okay? We've got people who are denying the power of God. And then we have a man who represents people who are pursuing the power of God. They want to know the power of God. Even resurrection power. So that's the camp I want to be in. I want to be in the resurrection power camp. Now, it's interesting, when we talk about power in the Bible, in the New Testament, um, there there is one place where power resides, or um, there's one place where power inheres, we should say, and of course that is God, but through a particular person of the Godhead. And that person is the Holy Spirit. Now, from here on out, I just want you to take this as a primer on the Holy Spirit. And and I hope and pray that Dave will allow me at some point in the not-so-distant future to preach a series on the Holy Spirit. So, when you see Dave, if you would say to him, hey, let Phil preach that series on the Holy Spirit sometime, that would be really cool. So, but I can't get into everything about the Holy Spirit, but 
I mean, we, we should talk about who the Holy Spirit is, really. Francis Chan calls him the forgotten God, if you haven't read his book, the forgotten God. We've forgotten about the Holy Spirit. We don't talk about him that much, in our circles at least, right? So let me just say this. The Holy Spirit is not just for Pentecostals. He's not just for Charismatics. Now, the cool thing is, if you didn't know this, I grew up Pentecostal. I grew up Charismatic. So I know about the Holy Spirit. But, but I became of that, a part of that group that Francis Chan was talking about, the Forgotten God, I think, for a period of time. And, and, and the Lord's kind of awakening me to the, to the purpose of the person of the Holy Spirit and the reason that we need Him. So I titled this sermon, Come Holy Spirit, We Need You. Have you ever heard that? That old course saying in and around churches, Come Holy Spirit, We Need You. The way the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit, it is definitely true. We need the Holy Spirit. Now, John 14... There, Jesus talks about uh, the Holy Spirit. John 14 to 16. Talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is getting ready to leave. And here's what he says to his disciples. He says, that is, leave this earth, you know. This is a little prior to his crucifixion, but it's, it's at hand. He says in verse 18 of John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. You know what an orphan is? You know an orphan is, is fatherless or parentless. But even more so, an orphan represents powerlessness. Okay? There's a group of people that the Bible talks about on a regular basis. Uh, widows is one. Aliens is another. Um, orphans is another. The fatherless. They represent the disenfranchised in society. Those who are taken advantage of. Those who can't defend themselves. Those that are abused by people in power. And Jesus says to His disciples, listen, I'm leaving you and and I realize that I have been your power. I have been your source of strength. You have found meaning for life and purpose for life in me and a reason to live And now I'm leaving you, and you're really sad, but don't be sad. In fact, be really happy. Because I'm sending my Holy Spirit back. And He's going to live in you. And that's going to be even better than me walking around with you. Isn't that insane? That the Holy Spirit coming and living in them was going to be better than Jesus being there with them in the flesh. And somehow, we tend to look back at the disciples and think that we... We don't have it as good as them because they walk with Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus, if you're a Christian, lives in you. So right now, you know how many Jesuses are in this room? Just one. (laughs) So that you don't think I'm a heretic. But my point is that each and every one of you, if you are a believer in Christ... Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been sent to live in you. I'm going to strict. After last time, they really 
tighten down the screws. It's not good because I'm doing what I normally do. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is living in each and every one of you. And Jesus has sent him to you because he's not going to leave you as orphans. Because you're not going to be powerless, right? You're going to have power. And then he says, this coming of me to you in, what is it, verse 26? He's calling the Helper, the Holy Spirit. The Father is going to send him in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So he's a helper. And what does he help? Do, you know, he helps us know Christ. He helps us come to understand the person and the nature of Christ better and better and more and more so that we are transformed as we look into his glory. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not come and testify of himself. He comes and he testifies of Jesus. Now, just to seal this deal, in Acts chapter 1, you know, they're there. It's the time of the ascension. Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven. And his disciples are there and some other folks are there. And he says, um, they, they said to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said, don't get ahead of yourselves. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father's fixed by his own authority. Verse 8, but you will receive what? That's a weak power. But you will receive when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, the Holy Spirit, He's a person. Again, I wish we had time to talk about uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, but just trust me, He's a person. And when he comes, he comes with power. Power to do what? To be witnesses. Now, to be a witness, it's all-encompassing, right? It's all-encompassing. He's not just talking about speaking words about Christ. He's talking about the transformation of our lives. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, we're going to have to hurry, but we can do it. I want to give you five metaphors of the Holy Spirit given in Scripture. Now, you know what a metaphor is, right? You know, like if, if we're at the softball game and, and Matt Helen hits a home run and he comes around home plate and we say to him, Matt, you're a beast. And he's not really a beast, right? Well, he, he could be, but <laughs> it's a metaphor. We're, we're just saying something that represents, you know, what he just did. There are Five really good metaphors of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. I want you to see the first one in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. It's the first metaphor, a dove. Why, right? I mean, don't you love Scripture? Don't you love every word of Scripture? Like, why does he say like a dove? Well, think about this. 
Way back in Genesis, I think it's chapter 8, when, when Noah and you know, the ark whole deal and they got done with that and they're in the boat still and they're trying to figure out if they can get off the boat. So he does what? He sends out a dove. And the first time the dove just comes right back. Like the message was, no, you can't leave yet. And then they send the dove out again. And then this time the dove comes back with an olive branch. Right? So you've seen this symbol throughout history, right? A dove and an olive branch representing what? Peace. So, so you see the idea is that when the waters subside, the idea is that now the land's at peace. The judgment of God, the wrath of God has passed, right? And then the third time, Noah sends out the dove and the dove doesn't come back. Never sees the dove again, right? So then they know it's time to get off the boat. Time to get off the ark. Now, (laughs) do you ever wonder what happened to the dove? Now, I'm not being literal here, but it's just amazing to me. I love scripture, I tell you. Here we are in Matthew chapter 3, and Jesus shows up to do his ministry, and the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. (laughs) That his dove was just wherever until Jesus came because Jesus is the one who ultimately quenches the wrath of God. Right? Isn't that awesome? He's the one that brings us peace. The Holy Spirit empowers us by giving us peace or ministering peace to us as he ministers to us Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed how much more powerful you are in terms of your Christian living and your Christian witness when you're at peace? Have you ever noticed that? Well, if you haven't, you should. Being at peace enables you to be really be who God's called you to be. Because when you're at peace, guess what? You're not fighting for yourself. You're not a lover of self or concerned about things that you need in this life and how you might need to use other people around you and manipulate them to get what you need. You're not not ministering from a big black hole, in other words. You're at peace. You're content. Because God has given you everything you need. You're good. That's the first metaphor. The second metaphor, Acts chapter 2, verse 3. All right, we'll start with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all suddenly, or they're all in one place together, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared on them. Um. Tongues of fire. You know what fire represents, don't you? Fire represents refinement or purification. And you know that silver and gold are talked about in the Bible time and again as being refined by fire. But then we see in 1 Peter chapter 1 that our faith gets refined. And that's more precious than gold. Why? So that it may result in the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ on that day when we see Him. 
the Holy Spirit is like a fire. You know what John the Baptist said? He says, yeah, I baptize you with water unto repentance. And that's important, you know. But there's one coming after me. I am not worthy to even loosen his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's bone chilling, isn't it? I mean, don't you want the fire of God burning in you? Cleansing you and purifying you and because don't you want to be ready on that day when praise is given to Jesus Christ? Don't you want to be ready? Sure, we'll have sin still on that day, right? I mean, that's what the day is about. Finishing sin in us. But yet, I want a spirit that's on fire. I want a spirit, a pure spirit. We can have that. A pure spirit that's putting out Sin, that's killing sin each and every day, that's going after sin. I want to be on fire. That's the second matter. The third is wind. Once again, yeah, flip the, there you go. Same passage. And there, there came a sound like a mighty rushing wind. That's another metaphor for the Holy Spirit. Now, th- the root word behind wind is the word for, for breathe, breath. So if you go back to Genesis, God was there creating, right? And guess who was there with God? Well, we know from John chapter 1 that the Word was with God, right? He was with God. So Jesus, pre-Jesus, Word was there, the Son. But then also, verse 1 or 2 says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I love that image, right? It's like God is getting ready to create, and where's the Spirit of God? He is out there like a hovercraft over the waters. Just just waiting. And God says, let there be, and the Spirit of God goes, and there was. I mean, there was trees and and, and earth and soil, there were planets and there were stars, the heavens, there was water, seas and fish and because of the life that was brought about as God spoke and the Holy Spirit went forth. Think about this. After Jesus was resurrected, He went to he went to, um, to see the disciples, right? And they're all, they're scared. And, and he walks in. And before he's done with them, it, it, we're told that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. Just like God breathed out creation. And if you want to know when the disciples were saved, That's the most likely scenario, right there. Because Jesus is breathing new life into them. That's an awesome picture. The Holy Spirit is the breath of God. Hagias pneumatas, the breath of God. That's the root word beneath spirit. Breath of God. If we want life then, 
Ask the Holy Spirit to come. We want, do you want life? Praise the Lord, two of you do. I'll give you another chance. Do you want life? Yes. Absolutely. I used to hate speakers that made me respond. Come on, get on with it. Not a baby. (laughs) The book of Revelation says this when John's writing, and you know, there's the seven churches. He says, um, you know, he, he has letters to each church, right? And he starts each letter by saying this, the Spirit says to the church. <laughs> what would he say to our church? What would he say to us? What is he saying to us? What does he want from us? What is the life that he wants to live through us? The Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life. One final thing on that, just to think about Ezekiel, is it 33? The Valley of Dry Bones. Doesn't that make you want to stand up and shout? A dead army, nothing but bones. And God says to Ezekiel, do you think these bones can live? (laughs) And he showed him. God breathed on these bones, and they stood up, and they developed muscles and skin, and they came to life, a mighty army. That is awesome. So what should we glean from that? Well, if we pray and ask God to breathe on us, I guarantee you, if everybody here, this coming week, how about some homework? Real homework. Not just talk homework. You pray this week. Everybody here, pray this week and ask God to send His Holy Spirit down next week when we gather. Ask Him. Let's just see what happens. Let's see if anything's different about next week. Will you do that? I'm not, not just, I don't want just a few. I don't want just the prayer team. But everybody here, little kids, teenagers, adults, old people, which I'm now a part of, Seniors, that's what we like to say, seniors. Pray, pray that God send His Spirit. Lord, descend upon us. Breathe on us. Give us life. Give us life. Will you do that? Please. I'm not just, I'm not kidding. We need the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We need you. We need you. We're tired of running in our own strength. We're tired of using our own breath. We want the breath of God. We want the life of God. That's the third one. The fourth one is tongues. Um, Verse 3, and divided tongues is a fire. Boy, this this one scares us mainline people a lot, right? Tongues. I don't care. I'm not afraid of the word tongues. If God wants to make us speak in tongues, then hallelujah. Hallelujah. And you know what? God does want to make us speak in tongues. Because I think the idea behind this passage is that the people there on that day were speaking a different language. 
They were speaking a heavenly language, which maybe was an earthly language. Who cares what language they were speaking? They were speaking something other than what they normally speak. So, instead of Peter speaking Peter-ese, he was speaking heaven-ese. Right? Now, think a little further with me. What does James say again? That when God really gets control of us, what changes about us? Right? The tongue changes. Jesus alluded to this. He says, listen, if you want to know what's in a man's heart, listen to what he says. Right? Because as the heart is, so the mouth speaks. So you want to, the sign of tongues to me is not that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. The sign of tongues is that God is in control of you. God's in charge of you. He's on the throne. And you're saying, Lord, I'll follow you. Wherever you lead me. Wherever you lead me, lead me, I'll follow you. That's the fourth metaphor. The fifth metaphor is water. John 7, 37. Speaking of water, I could sure use some. Never mind. It's okay. John... 37, I'm almost done anyway. Uh, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, hallelujah, (laughs) let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. Is there another slide? Whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus is saying when the Spirit comes, then then water. The Holy Spirit will fill you, and it will be like a river of life flowing up out of you, and you will never get thirsty. So, listen, if you find yourself wanting as a believer, you find yourself thirsty as a believer in spirit, then guess what? You need more of the spirit. If you find yourself dry, listen, I've got certain things, tendencies in my life, certain sins that I've always committed in my life, or certain places I go when, when you know, I'm thirsty. And I've learned now that when I see those symptoms, <clears throat> I've learned to go, Phil, you need more of Jesus. You need more of the Spirit, and you need Him fast, because you're running on empty. Look at the things that are coming out of your mouth. Looking at where you, look at where your eyes are going. Look at, look at the discontentment of your heart. We need the Holy Spirit because we need the satisfaction that He gives us. And we also need the Holy Spirit because not only do we need to drink, but the people around us need to drink. Right? I've got a river of life flowing out of me. It makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. It opens prison doors and sets the captive free. 
I've got a river of life flowing out. That's what we need. You know, we're nobody, right? We can't set anybody free. But when we're full of Jesus, when we're full of the Spirit, then lives are changed. The people around us are changed. So, please, this week, this is a, a primer or a primer, something you put on before paint, an appetite wetter. Hopefully one day, as the Lord wills, we can do a series on the Spirit. But in the least, this week, I want you to pray that the Lord would come down and fill us individually and fill us as a body. You know, Paul did say in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine. A lot of wine drinking going on nowadays. But don't be drunk with wine. But be filled with the Spirit. Now, would you bow your heads, please, as we get ready for communion. Here's here's what I want you to do as you have your heads bowed. Now, this is a very serious moment, okay, for me. Um, Please don't use it as a time to rearrange your belongings. I want you to think about how you may have denied the power of God in your life and just accepted going through the motions. Just accepted this kind of form of religion or form of godliness. You know, the really cool thing is, is that, again, as we talked about, God can breathe new life into you today. God is, He loves resurrecting people. He loves resurrecting dry bones. He loves giving life. So if that's you, do not fret. Repent of your sins and say, God, forgive me. It's not too late. I'm still breathing. So please breathe new life into me.